0: Well, it's real good to be with y'all this morning. In 1933, two days after Adolf Hitler became the chancellor of Germany, a pastor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer went on the radio and denounced him and his political ideology. Bonhoeffer is an example of someone that is a true hero of the faith. While others, other Christians, pastors at the time, waited or cowered in fear, he spoke with expediency and certainty against evil. Bonhoeffer was executed for treason on April 9th, 1945, just days before the American liberation of the POW camp he was being detained in. They stripped him of his clothes and hanged him. Death is tragic. But when someone is sentenced to death and murdered because of their righteousness, their goodness, it is particularly despairing, I think. It makes us wonder, how can the world be this way? That a man is stripped of his clothing and hanged for his righteous indignation toward evil. Shouldn't justice and favor be the proper reward for righteousness? You guys seen the uh, raccoon family? There's a raccoon family in the tree. Are they there? Hopefully they don't. What's that? Oh, he's down on the ground near my body. Needs to hear the gospel this morning. Uh, We're blessed because we have some writings from Bonhoeffer while he was in prison before he died and he wrote this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and in distress, a captive and forsaken as I am. You know all man's troubles. You abide with me when all men fail me. You remember and seek me. Bonhoeffer knew and wanted us to know that when you are in the midst of injustice on account of your righteousness, there is one provision of grace that can never be taken from you. It is the greatest treasure a human can can possess, the abiding presence of God. In a world where righteousness is often rewarded with injustice, God's presence is our greatest asset. If you look at the whole story of the Bible, the whole story is about a God who creates humans and creates them for his presence. And his whole purpose in creating them is to be present with his people. He's present with Adam and Eve in the garden and he only removes them from his presence because of their sin. And he has to do that because if he doesn't, he would be betraying his own nature, his own holy nature. So, so he's forced to do that because of their sin. But then you read throughout the entire Old Testament, all of these new ways that God is sort of, these plans and schemes that he's devising to get himself back into the presence of his people. We have animal sacrifice, The law, the Ark of the covenants, the tabernacle, and then later the temple. These are all places that God occupied so that he could be again near to his beloved creation. None of those were good enough. His nature separated him from us. And so he needed a new nature. And so he took on human nature, human flesh, all to be with us so that the presence of God could dwell among us. And then after Jesus dies and raises from the dead, he sits at the right hand of the Father and then sends his spirit to dwell within Christians, people that follow the way of Jesus, so that the same presence of God that dwelled in Christ now dwells in our own bodies. There's no greater gift that God could give us than his own presence. And there's really not a greater gift we can give each other in our relationships. And that's becoming increasingly the case with all of the technology that we have, the distractions we have, right? When you're with somebody that you love, don't you just want them to be with you? Presence is such a valuable asset and it's what God gives his people and it's what he gave joseph joseph knew the presence of the living god and he treasured it it's more valuable to him than status material wealth power even sexual desire and so this morning i think an invitation to us is to ask ourselves: like what value to me is god's presence is it my most valued possession? Is it enough for me? Do I, do I when I go before the Lord, do I, am I satisfied with the person of God that dwells within me? Or are there so many other things that I say, God, if only you would do this or give that, you're not enough, could you also? Let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump into our text this morning. Jesus, we thank you for uh, men and women of the faith, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, mothers and fathers of the faith whose stories jar us out of our self-centeredness. Their stories remind us that the stakes of our, our righteousness are often much lower than theirs, and yet they were faithful. God, I pray that you would turn us into mothers and fathers of the faith, that we would be people that cherish your presence and so um, we we praise you holy spirit that you are here among us this morning That there's no other place you'd rather be than dwelling in our bodies and so god i pray holy spirit that you would speak through your word as we just read your word would you make it come alive would you make it quick and powerful sharper than a two-edged sword this morning we love you and thank you amen also pray for whoever may be hurting that's far away. Sounds like someone's not okay. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 39, starting in um, verse 1. We're in week 3 of our study in the book, or the, the Life of Joseph from the Old Testament. The first week we talked about this generational sin of favoritism that Jacob had passed on. To Joseph, he remember he gives him this expensive and rare coat. Um, in that story, uh, remember Joseph kind of ratted out his older brothers, uh, and then he had some dreams where he's kind of standing in a position of power to uh, his whole family, and so his brothers hate him for it. Um, it's it's a it's a recipe for disaster, and then disaster strikes. And last week, the story was about how Joseph's brothers plot to kill him. And they would have, except that God sort of steps in, um, in his divine providence. Uh, But the brothers still strip him of his robe, his dignity, even his name, calling him this dreamer. Uh, I talked about how um, we are not the sum of our greatest faults. We're not named for our greatest faults. And so I pray that this week um, that you have... Replace whatever names you've been called in your life with the word beloved, the name beloved, uh, that you would know that um, that's who you are. You are God's beloved. Uh, Joseph's assaulted and then thrown into a 20-foot pit. Um, we, we talked about his mind sort of being plagued with this new vision of despair that would have replaced the picture that he had in his dream instead of standing in the middle of his brothers kind of above them. Now he's below them in the center looking up as they surround him, looking down on him. Um, then he's sold into slavery and sent off to Egypt. And so, uh, interestingly, today's text involves three things we've already seen in Joseph's story. Um, favoritism is back in this story. Joseph's clothing, a reference to Joseph's clothing, his garment. And betrayal. Those three themes are back. But the main theme of the text this morning, and maybe you caught it in my introduction and you heard it in when Emily read um, the passage, the main theme of this section is God's presence. You see it in both the beginning of the story and again at the end that God is with Joseph. Let's pick it up in verse one. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph is sold to a man named Potiphar. And it tells us that Potiphar is the captain of an elite group of warriors who protected Pharaoh. Okay, that's what the captain of the guard was. Okay, so this is like, this guy's a big deal. Uh, The type of guy you don't want to mess with. Um, We learn that God is with Joseph though his circumstances are difficult God has remained present and faithful to him. We see that Joseph is successful. Um the narrative tells us that he moves he starts out as an outside worker that he would have as a slave but then he's moved in indoors, he's promoted indoors. Then he's promoted to being Potiphar's personal assistant. And then eventually, the manager of his entire estate. Okay, so picture um, a, a janitor working at Apple, who then gets brought uh, in, to inside to be sort of like working reception, something like that. Um, then becomes Tim Cook's personal assistant, and then later replaces Tim as the CEO. Right? That, it's a big deal uh, when we think of it that way. This is a this rise to success is enormous for somebody in Joseph's position. We don't know how long it took it could have this could have happened in months it could have happened in years we don't know we know he's about 17 when he when he uh sold into slavery and then furthermore we see that his success is seen by potiphar um, and attributed to god that even potiphar says your rise to success is because god your god is with you um, and then potiphar experiences enormous blessing because of the blessing that he gives joseph and i was thinking this week that um joseph is no longer bound by the tyranny of human favoritism in his dysfunctional family he's now the favorite he's now being favored but only by god what a relief Right, because Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph was only temporary and ultimately stripped away from him. But God's favor is permanent. We see that Joseph has also grown in wisdom and humility. Notice that there's no aspiration of power in him. He receives God's favor and conducts himself in a worthy manner. Maybe he's learned a few things, grown a little bit, right? Uh, There's no jealousy spoken of in this section, though I would imagine that there's plenty of opportunity for jealousy because there would have been a whole household of slaves that had probably been there long before Joseph ever showed up. And so I think that tells us that um, the success that he's experienced tells us that those under him maybe celebrated his success, that they weren't threatened by it. That Joseph had grown in his maturity and his wisdom and he'd come to understand that God's favor is always for the sake of blessing others. So that perhaps the people around him were like, actually, we're celebrating your success. Joseph remembers that. That's the story that God's telling. He remembered that God promised his great-grandfather Abraham that he would bless him and his family. But that was so that they could be a blessing to the whole world. So Joseph catches that vision for his life and vocation and is living that out. God's intention to bless his family for the sake of other people. And I was thinking this, this week um, that this is a great model for us to think about our own jobs. Our own vocation. Whatever station God has given you. Okay, You only have your job because of God's gracious unmerited favor over your life you didn't really earn your job God gave you the talent, the brains the resources that you needed to be where you are, he gave you the mental emotional health that you need to do your job all of those are gifts from the Lord and he blessed you with all of those things so that you could be a blessing to the people around you Okay, when you enter your workplace, the spirit of God goes with you into that space. Remember that Jesus has taken up residence in your body, your mind, your heart, your gifts and talents. And he intends to bless your place of work with his favor as a result of your presence there. I hope that is both encouraging to you and challenging the same time okay whether you whether you love your job or hate it whether you feel adequate to do your job or not appreciated in your job or not know that God had those people and that workplace in mind when he sent you there he wanted to bless them you are also a child of this promise the promise that God made to Abraham to bless all nations so you're called all of us are called to be loving to be joyful, to be peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. These are the fruits of the Spirit that God has put in us to extend to others. They're not just for our sake, they're for the sake of those around us. And by exhibiting these traits, people are receiving, whether they know it or not, will receive it or not, they're experiencing the blessing of the presence of God. How are you doing at that? How are you stewarding the blessing of God's presence in your place of work? Do you bless others? Is your drive to succeed and do well so that others might be blessed and attribute that blessing to the Lord who lives within you or are you primarily, think, primarily thinking about yourself, like how you can um, succeed and grow and gain? It seems like the beginning of the story that Joseph's life is sort of finally back on track. He's survived uh, what he probably thinks is the greatest trauma of his life, right? Um, hoping that that's all behind him. Um, but in spite of God's presence and all of the success that he's experiencing, there's this looming threat. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in Joseph's mind and heart in these encounters that he has with Potiphar's wife. Uh, so we don't know if it's more of a story about resisting sexual temptation or more a story about um, him being the victim of sexual abuse and assault. The narrative lends itself to both of those though. So I actually want to look at it from both those perspectives, uh, beginning with sexual temptation. Let's pick it up in verse six. Now, Joseph was handsome and in form and appearance. There are instances in the Old Testament where a person is referred to as beautiful or handsome in form. So you have examples of that then you have other instances where someone is referred to as beautiful or handsome in appearance. So either form or appearance, but only twice in the entire Old Testament is somebody described as being beautiful in both of those categories, form and appearance. Joseph's mom, Rachel, is described that way and now Joseph, okay? So Joseph is like a specimen of a man. He's incredibly beautiful. Oh, how I long to be as beautiful as Joseph. Um, and it's, he's so attractive that it, that becomes a liability to him. Verse seven, and after a time, Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. Lie with me. Um, you did a good job when you said it earlier, Emily, like putting out the, the vibe with the, the the language I just meant you you know what I mean I didn't plan what I just said so I didn't know how I was gonna come out um, we live in a world with like really explicit references to sex right in our like media and our music and so when we when we rely with me we're like oh, okay it seems pretty mild to us but in the Hebrew okay this is like really explicit really direct she makes it very clear that she wants to have sex with Joseph I think it's good for us to kind of imagine um, we don't know what's Joseph attracted to her or anything like that but let's try to imagine a little bit um, that it was difficult for Joseph to resist this temptation okay she's the wife of the captain of the guard he's one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt she's probably really beautiful takes really good care of her of herself he's young he may be as young as 17 or 18 he's at the height of his sexual peak He'd probably never been with a woman. There's probably not a lot of hope for him to like get married and be with a woman, okay? Beyond that, he's experienced betrayal, physical trauma, displacement, enslavement. So those circumstances I think would have made him very vulnerable. Think of the enormous needs that he had, the longing that he would have had for comfort, for love, for companionship. So if you, were, if you were Joseph, might you feel entitled to pleasure? Some relief from all that you have endured. Perhaps that is how you justify your own sin now. You work hard, you've been through a lot, you have unfulfilled longings, you're only human. These are the lies that Satan whispers in our ear in the midst of our greatest temptation. They're all meant to convey one irresistible deception. You deserve this. Joseph, the righteous, the man who cherishes God's presence, does not give in to temptation. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Potiphar's wife tempts Joseph with two Hebrew words that mean lie, to me, lie with me in English. And then he goes on a 35 word rant against her, okay? He uses a 17 to one ratio of truth to lies, to resist her, okay? That should instruct us, I think, a little bit, right? We're gonna need a mountain of truth to stomp out an anthill of lies, okay? And Joseph's strategy for resisting her is anchored in relational loyalty. He appeals to three relationships in his his speech. His relationship with Potiphar, his relationship with God and her relationship to her own husband. Okay, first he says, I love Potiphar. Like the whole reason he has placed me over his house is to relieve him of burdens. Why would I burden him in this way is what he's saying. Why would I do this to him? Joseph references Potiphar's care for him. Potiphar has withheld nothing from me besides you, he tells her. He's thinking, how can I show such contempt for all that Potiphar has done for me? Okay, Joseph knows the meaning of loyalty. He's the victim of betrayal. He knows the pain that that would cause Potiphar. Then he tries to remind her of of her relationship. Okay, you are his wife, Joseph says, hoping she will remember her vows. And then finally, and most forcefully and most importantly, Joseph appeals to his relationship with God. To do this act would be to betray his loyalty to and love for God. I'm convicted by Joseph's use of the word wicked here in referencing this sin. I rarely have the courage and humility to call sin wicked. I like to call it a struggle or an attack as though I lack agency am a victim and that there are worse things that I could do Joseph calls it what it is wickedness if you are wrapped up in sexual sin it is wickedness and I don't say that to shame you but I do say it to shake you because wickedness will destroy you proverbs five twenty two says the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin wicked sin enslaves us and that is not how god created us to live and flourish we were made to be free i highlight the relational aspect of joseph's resistance strategy and focus on his love for potiphar and for god very intentionally i don't know what your story is around like being a christian and sexuality and purity and those kind of things um but i grew up in a church environment that did not teach me love as the primary motivation to resist sexual sin Instead, shame and laws were given to me. I was told to look upon my God-given sexual desire with contempt and disgust. And if I did that, then I might stay pure. Renee and I sinned sexually uh, in our dating relationship before we were married. And we had a mentor that sat with us at dinner one night and The man looked at me and sternly said, CJ, every time you touch Renee sexually, you're basically raping her. It was like, let me say this in the most shameful, harsh, scary way possible. It's like, if you think of it that way, maybe you can resist the urge. Notice that his appeal was not to my positive love and respect for Renee's body (laughs) and her personhood and my love and loyalty to the Lord, but instead of appeal to shame and law. And that's just one, I, that, was, that was the main example I thought of. There's many other ones I could share of the type of messages I received growing up from my dating relationships to my sin of pornography. It was always shame and law. Another strategy I received was the law of crushing desire. If I could just starve this unwanted desire, it would die. Okay, but it was like a chemotherapy approach, right? We're going to kill all the good cells in an attempt to eradicate the bad, okay? So a lot of people grew up in the church being told that, you know, sex is terrible and horrible, and so they get married, and now all of a sudden this good gift that God's given us they have a hard time wanting it and desiring it because they've been taught their whole life this is a bad thing. To quote um, C.S. Lewis, He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. God doesn't hate your desires. He doesn't want you to kill them. He actually gave them to you for your pleasure. He just wants to be the rightful fulfillment of them. When we use shame and law as a strategy to resist sexual sin, it actually only reinforces all the more our unwanted desires. I'm reading a book right now called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. He's a Christian psychotherapist. He says this. Unwanted sexual behavior is not primarily an attempt to remedy or self-soothe the pain of a wounded child. That's a very different message. It is attempting to reenact the formative stories of trauma, abuse, and shame that convinced us we were unwanted to begin with. In other words, we are not addicted primarily to sex or even a disordered intimacy. Instead, we are bonded to feelings of shame and judgment. He goes on to say that when, when you sin sexually, you are actually trying to prove to yourself that you are as unwanted as you believe you are. That the very act is a way to reinforce something embedded in your heart it says you are worthless and unwanted and that the the act itself is your own attempt to reinforce that narrative that false narrative about yourself is there another way i think joseph shows us there is the strategy is one of love and curiosity Love for God, as Joseph models, is the only lasting motivation to resist resist temptation. But we can only love God in that kind of way to the extent that we have first received God's love for us. Your love for God, the power of your love for God to motivate you to resist sin, comes from having experienced and received and said yes to God's love. And we do that by saying yes to his presence in our lives, which he offers to us freely. God's presence leads us down a new path of healthy sexuality, one where God uses grace and curiosity to show us how our rightly ordered desires have been hijacked somewhere in our story. Stringer goes on and says, sexual failures, internet searches, and browser histories expose our sin, but far more they are roadmaps. Sexual brokenness pinpoints the location of our past harm and highlights the current roadblocks that keep us from the freedom we desire. If we are willing to listen, our sexual struggles will have so much to teach us. You may not like the map you've been given, but to navigate your way out of unwanted sexual behavior, you will need to pay closer attention to what it desires to show you. One evening of deliberate curiosity for your sexual fantasies will take you further into transformation than a 1000 nights of prayerful despair. I tried to quote enough of the book to make you say, I should read that. It's really good. It's been really helpful for me. Joseph did not resist Potiphar's wife in his own strength. His victory tells us he must have been attentive to his own heart in the quiet places of his time with the Lord. He had to have invited Yahweh to engage his story with compassion, grace, and tenderness. Those needs that he had that I mentioned earlier that would have tempted him to say yes to this temptation must have been met in the quiet places of his relationship with the Lord. That's the only explanation for this display of righteousness. This is not bootstrap behavior modification. I don't know what your story is but I want you to know you're not alone. There is hope for you. There are people in this church family that would love to walk with you on your roadmap no matter where it leads to help you to be curious, not shamed, not given laws, gracious curiosity to experience God's presence in those parts of your story where your rightly ordered desire for sex was hijacked Joseph resists temptation and he makes himself really clear to Potiphar's wife but she is not done okay the story takes a dark turn here I think and moves from sort of like temptation into like actually a scenario of exploitation and abuse from a person in power verse 11 but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house she caught him by his garment saying lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house so joseph he's going about his business doing his job walks into the house one day and it's super empty. He's like, what the heck? Where are all the other servants? Potiphar's wife has been calculated, right? This is like a predatory move. She's leveraging her power to coerce Joseph into an act that he's already made clear that he's not interested in, right? Now this is a tricky story because we live in a culture and a time where this scenario is not the common one. Right. The stories we have are about men using their power to exploit and coerce women into sexual acts. The Bible is full of those stories as well. Okay? And so if you're new to the Bible, um, just know that there's many of those occasions and, and, and God opposes those. But in this rare case, it's the reverse scenario. Brene and I are watching a docuseries on HBO called Catch and Kill. It's about Harvey Weinstein finally getting exposed for the sexual predator that he is and it's heart wrenching it's one of those things that it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up as you're sort of watching the process of grooming coercion there's cover-up there's complicit behavior of other female staff members who knew what was going on and yet they still didn't prevent it from happening to some of these women it's it's terrible and if we see this scene with Joseph and Potiphar's wife correctly, we will have that same pit in our stomach. And okay, when it says she caught him by his garment, it's actually an attack. Now, we, we, we don't know if it's just her, are there other women? It says there's no men in the house, maybe there's women there participating in this, but we know that it's an assault. She attacks him, she embarrasses him, he, he has fear. He flees for his life. Think of the flood of traumatic memories coming into his brain. After all, this wasn't the first time Joseph was stripped of his robe and violently attacked. Okay, we sort of had this, oh, he would have been stronger and those kinds of things. But that's not what the text tells us. He was experiencing this as an attack an assault. Statistics would show us that there are a number of people here today that have been the victims of sexual assault. I don't want to press too deep on this because I don't want to cause anyone unnecessary pain. And I apologize if even just talking about it, bringing it up, is triggering to you in any way. I do just want to say that God loves you. He sees you. I want you to hear that. We love you. You are safe here. This church family would love to walk with you and pay for care if you need it, to heal, if that's something you're open to. I want you to know that we have people in this church family who have experienced sexual abuse and the Lord has brought a tremendous amount of healing for them. Okay, it's your story to tell if and when you're ready to tell it but just know that you are not alone and that god is a healing god he can heal you wants to heal you in this docuseries there's a tape this is kind of how they caught him because they caught him on tape as a woman brave enough to wear a wire and he's caught on tape saying to one of the victims who resisted him don't ruin our friendship for just five minutes It's like, it makes you just want to vomit when you hear hear him talking. The women that were in these situations knew that to deny Harvey meant the end of their career. He like severely punished those who rejected his advances. Potiphar's wife is no different than that. She will ruin Joseph for this. Her accusations are actually grounds for his execution. And she knows that. Verse 13, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I, as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Notice the lie here. Did Joseph leave his garment? No she ripped it from his body and he left it in her hands. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant, notice that Joseph is no longer Joseph. He's now the Hebrew slave, referred to in xenophobic terms, stripped again of his name, of his dignity, of his value whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Okay, that's, that story is normally told like if you're struggling with temptation, you need to like flee the scene and, and leave your garment there. But that's not what's happening. Like she is ripping his garment off of him and assaulting him. And he has to run for his life. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison. Joseph is punished for doing the right thing. His righteousness is rewarded with injustice. And stripped of his dignity, his freedom, his name, his garment. Once again, there's only one thing left that he still has that no one can take from him the indwelling presence of God. Verse 21 But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison whatever was done there he was the one who did it the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did the Lord made it succeed God's presence (laughs) is the key to Joseph's flourishing to his healing it's the thing no one can take from him no matter how hard they try and that is true of you this morning brother and sister he sees you and he is with you no matter what he is with you in your enslavement he is with you in your temptation He is with you in your wicked acts of sin. He is with you in your trauma and pain. He is with you in the midst of injustice that occurs. He will never leave you. You are where he wants to be. All the time. Forever. That's why Jesus came to earth, took on human nature so that he could dwell with you. I imagine Jesus would have grown up very familiar with the story of Joseph. He would have asked his earthly father countless times, Daddy, what does your name mean? Are you named after anyone? And his father, Joseph, would have replied, as he did many times, Daddy's name means the Lord adds or gives. I am named after Joseph, remember, from the Torah? Remember that God was with Joseph and saved our people through him? Oh, yeah, I love that story, Jesus may have replied. Daddy, what does my name mean again? And who am I named after? And Joseph through tears of joy and pride would say to his son, your name means Yahweh saves. And buddy, you aren't named after anyone because you were before all things. You are the Lord who was with Joseph in the pit. You were with him when his righteousness was put to the test. You were with him when he was abused. You were with him in his prison cell. And someday, buddy, you will be with many people. They will need you more than anything. You will lead them down the good path, and they will find rest for their souls. In a world where righteousness is often rewarded with injustice, God's presence is our greatest asset. I pray we would all find hope in that today as Joseph did. Let me pray for us. God, I'm mindful this morning of how some of this content might be stirring in the hearts of people. Maybe we have people caught in sin right now and they feel a deep amount of shame and maybe helplessness and they don't feel like they have a a way out. There's no roadmap out. Pray for that person, God, that you would affirm them, that you are with them, leading them away from wickedness, leading them away from that which will harm them and enslave them and towards freedom. I pray they would trust, trust you to do that. God, I pray for brothers and sisters who are victims of verbal, emotional, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, any form of abuse, that you would remind them, Holy Spirit, that you are their counselor and healer, and that there's a road to healing for them as well. God, I pray that we would be a church family that would um, honor each other's stories and create spaces for each other, safe spaces, to be brought out of sin and be brought out of trauma. We love you and thank you for your presence among us today. It's in your name we pray, amen.